Welcome back to the KPO Podcast. I'm your host, Jagisha, and with me is my co-host, Shannon. This week, we are going to be talking about World War II, librarians, yay, my favorite subject. Actually, books are my favorite subject. The French Resistance and Spies. I hope that this has caught your interest, so stay tuned for the episode to learn who our guest is and the book that we are discussing. Our guest today is Madeline Martin. She is the New York Times and international bestselling author of The Last Bookshop in London. She is here to tell us about her newest novel, The Librarian Spy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I, and you know, as librarians, I think we're just very excited to talk about this book and want to know more about these spies. So jumping in and tell us about the book. So um, really the idea for this book came from um, the spies that were sent from, from America into neutral countries to gather intel, whether through, you know, underground publications that were coming from Nazi occupied areas or uh, even manuals, books, et cetera, things like that. And they would send it back to America. And a lot of times, unfortunately, these spies really were not well-trained. Um, and so they would just kind of be sent over there, not really knowing exactly what they were doing. And I thought that would be sort of an interesting idea for a book. So, so that's where we get Ava Harper's character. And then on the other side in France, we have a woman who is actually based off of a real woman who existed or she's inspired by. And she worked with the printing presses in the underground printing, um, like clandestine papers for the French resistance. So, and the two of them end up meeting through a coded message that goes through, uh, which a lot of times the underground press actually did make coded messages that they would get information out that way. That's so cool. So, thank you. Yeah. So, where did you first hear about these librarian spies? So I actually read about it in an article, I believe, um, I think it was like last year, maybe the beginning of last year. And I thought, oh, wow, that sounds so interesting, especially like the more I started digging into it and found out that, um, like, for example, Ian Fleming's 007, we all know that whole legacy. Well, Casino Royale was actually based off of his time in Lisbon, Portugal. So that will give you an idea of the consummate spies that these poor librarians really were up against when they were sent to these neutral countries. Um, you know, they just, they weren't really given the skills because they thought, oh, okay, well, they're going to be going and gathering intel, not realizing, I think, that they were going to encounter so many dicey situations. Um, so, so that was, I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> oh, definitely. So, I mean, I, as a librarian think, I'm like, I don't think I could be a very good spy. I might be a good handler, I think, you know, handling <laughs> the spies and keeping their right. secrets, but as a, an actual spy, I don't think I'd be very good. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stick with writing about them. You guys stick with reading about them. <laughs> so tell us more about your two main characters. You've got Ava and Elaine. Um, what motivates them to do this dangerous job? With both of them, it really is just trying to help end the war as fast as possible. With Ava, it's just her and her brother, and um, her brother is actually in, in war, and so she has been trying so hard to do volunteer efforts as much as she can. She was initially working for the Library of Congress, but still doing um, like side work on like with uh, Red Cross. And then you have Elaine Russo, which is actually her code name. Um, you'll find her real name if you read the book, I guess. But basically, her husband has been um, arrested, and he's always held her back from joining the French Resistance, which is something that she's 
always wanted to do. And so her being able to really be active in the resistance is sort of her way of also helping him as well as trying to help everybody else who's being oppressed by the Nazis. And um, I was I was very fortunate actually to get to go do research to Lisbon and to Lyon and actually the Library of Congress as well um, for this book, which was a pretty amazing experience. So, yeah. That is awesome. I've always wanted to visit the Library of Congress. Did you get to go um, into any of the like restricted sections or anything like that? No, I didn't get to do any of the restricted sections. You know, honestly, I went, everything was so locked tight because of COVID. Like I, we had to make, um, cause I went with a couple of girlfriends of mine and we all sort of did research cause we're all writers together. And it was one of those things where we had to book our appointments out. Like it was like three months out. And um, I even had to do a PCR test because I had just recently gotten back from Lisbon doing research for mm -hmm. the other part of this book. And it said, if you've been out of the country within so many days, you have to have a negative PCR. So I even had to go get like a negative PCR and then they never even asked for it, of course. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I was actually hoping somebody would ask for it just because I went through the effort of getting it. But uh, you know, it's fine. It was just a brain tickle. <laughs> <laughs> So who were some of the like real life librarian spies that you, you know, learned about? What what were they like? And, you know, like, I'm, I'm interested to know who, who these real life librarian spies were. So there are two specifically that come to mind. Um, there was a, one of the, one of the people who actually went to Lisbon was a man and, um, he actually was was sort of almost a little bit like my character where he wasn't, you know, he wasn't like the souped up spy kind of a person. He was just like your average Joe. And apparently he sort of had some health issues, which my character doesn't, but it didn't exactly make him, you know, um, somebody who's jumping from rooftop to rooftop and, and rolling underneath doors that are closing too fast and, and all of those sort of spy-like things. And then there was one woman who was actually with the IDC, although she did work more with Sweden and, or rather Switzerland. And there's one female spy and she was in Switzerland. And actually she was like a consummate spy. She really did know what she was doing. She took meticulous notes. Um, she was so thorough with everything that she would send over that her boss would ask her questions like, well, how did you find this? And what did you do and blah, blah, blah. And she never answered him, but she always kept sending everything over. And as much fun as I think it would be to really write a spy who knew everything that she was doing, I feel like, um, I feel like there are a lot of out there that do have that already. And I really loved the idea. And I guess maybe it's because for myself, I consider myself to be more like of a reader than a spy. And so for, for me, I, I thought it was maybe kind of selfish of me, but I was like, oh, this is going to be a fun story to write, sort of putting myself as not a good spy into the role of a spy and then seeing how that sort of goes. And so I, I kind of thought, you know, a lot of times if when Ava would encounter certain things, well, what would I do in this situation? <laughs> so, it, you know, I, I thought that it was a lot of fun to write that. And then with Elaine's character, the woman who actually was based or who, like I said, who inspired her character was a woman who worked with the French resistance. And she um, gave her identity papers to a woman who is Jewish to help the woman um, live. And she just, she was such an incredible woman with everything that she did, all of the, her efforts with the French resistance, 
And, um, and even after the fact, um, I didn't, I didn't use this particular part in the book, but I was so impressed by her at the end of the war, a lot of the collaborators, like a lot of the women who would have slept with the Nazis had their heads shaved and, and they were sort of paraded in the streets with shame. And she actually stepped up to defend those women, even though they had done something wrong. She was basically like saying, why are we going to be doing the same thing to to them as was done to us? Like, why would we do this? And then the crowd actually turned on her and somebody in the audience, not the audience, but the crowd recognized her and was able to say, hey, she's done a lot. Like she was working with the French resistance and, you know, she's like was making these papers and she was a courier and she did all of these things. And so she ended up being saved from an angry mob. But um, but she really just she was such an incredible woman. And when I was reading about her in my research, I thought, wow, I, I need to put this in a book because she is just too incredible not to. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, I had heard that uh, they were using a lot more women or women were more involved in spying during World War II than anything else because Nazis didn't consider, didn't take women too seriously. Yeah. Right. But. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, especially when you think about like with French women, because they, it with, with, with French women, they really do take so much pride. And I'm not saying that other women in the world don't take pride in their appearance, but, but, you know, when you think of like Paris and you think of, you know, French women, it's always like the red lipstick and the perfectly done hair and the heels, even though you're going on a two mile walk, you know, and they really are like sort of just beautiful. And, and these Nazis, they really saw them as just sort of pretty focal points. They didn't think of them as being, being able to, to do these, like capable of doing all of these efforts that they did with um, mm. the resistance. They would have these shopping baskets, but yeah, they had explosives in them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and all these sort of things that these women were able to accomplish really underneath the noses of Nazis because they did so take them for granted. That's so awesome. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and one of the really cool things about Lyon specifically, so Lyon was actually the French resistance capital of France, which was declared later on at the end of the war. But they have these um, really cool things called traboules, and they're covered passageways that connect all of the various buildings and courtyards together. And they have they have hundreds of them all through Lyon. And it's so neat because if you enter on one particular street, you could exit on another street, sometimes several blocks away. And so it really, those were built before World War II. It was for the silk workers that wanted to avoid all of the hills, which is pretty ingenious if you ask me. Um, but they were wonderful during World War II with the French resistance, first of all, because the Nazis didn't know that complicated maze of passageways. Mm -hmm. But then also it was great for clandestine meetings. It was great for escaping. And it was also great for having um, little notes that they could pass to one another in secret locations with code, of course. Oh yeah, another really interesting fact that I always loved learning about little things like that that uh, that was happening during those time periods. Yeah, I think you know that's one of the things. So I, I do like a ton, a ton, a ton of research for my books. I'm a total research nerd and, and history nerd, and, and all combined together. And so for me, I, I absolutely love doing the research and finding those just like those little things that you can incorporate in there, like. Um, like, for example, the red lipstick that the Americans wore, how they had the Montezuma red lipstick that was government issue for mm -hmm. women who were in the military. But then, of course, the civilians wanted their own. So Elizabeth Arden made the victory red that civilians could purchase. And, you know, just little details like that. I feel like for me, at least, it really brings history to life. Mm -hmm. And so I try to incorporate as many of those nuggets as possible into the book um, to really let people sort of experience what life was like back then. Yeah, absolutely.
So what draws you to World War II? Because both The Librarian Spy and also The Last Bookshop in London were set during that time period. For me, I think with World War II, um, it, it's I, for me, it's like really one of the darkest times in history that I can think of, especially mm -hmm. something that feels near enough that we could know people who lived through it. Like I actually have had survivors that have sent me emails. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it so much more real knowing that it, it could have occurred, you know, within, if not obviously like, not our lifetimes, but close enough to be people that are still in their lifetime. And not only was it such a dark time period, but you had these people who were so brave, who, who sacrificed so much and put so much on the line. It's just that kind of bravery is just mind blowing. I mean, it, it would be so easy to say, oh, well, I would definitely sacrifice myself for the right thing. But would you sacrifice your baby, your children, your parents? Mm -hmm. And when you start to really think about what these people put at risk, specifically to help and to do the right thing, oftentimes for people that they don't even know, I mean, it, it really is just, it's incredible. Yeah, that's why uh, they call it the greatest generation. So yeah. was the, the World War II, my, gran the gran my grandparents' generation. So yeah, I, I totally agree. I've read so many books where you read the stories of all the sacrifices that everyone made and it's, it's just incredible. It really is. And, and even just how people found ways around to work around, you know, um, like even little small things, like, for example, if somebody's birthday and so they saved up with their sugar ration to make sure they could make them a cake. And, you know, even little small things like that, just, you know, these gestures and having to work around the hardships. And of course, there that was such a small, <laughs> small sort of, um, you know, mm -hmm. part of it. But yeah. Oh, definitely. Because I, I remember reading about families taking in Jewish members into their house and yeah. hiding them in the house and their attics and things. Absolutely. And just, you know, for example, now I'm doing research for Poland. And so I'm learning all these different aspects of the war while I'm doing this research. And Poland, the Nazis really wanted to completely get rid of Poland. They wanted to make it basically like a new Germany full of Germans. And so with them, they didn't, they were very, very ruthless. Like I feel like with France, they tried to at least be sort of, you know, gentlemanly and, and, you know, sort of kid gloves. But when it came to Poland, the gloves were wrenched off and they were who they were. And so if somebody was, for example, found hiding, if somebody was hiding a Jew in their home, then the entire apartment complex could be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, I mean, it was incredibly just dangerous it was just incredibly dangerous work, but people, the fact that people still made, they still risked all of that just to help other people. That's what I think is so wonderful. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they risked their lives and the lives of people around them, but it, because they needed to do the right thing. And absolutely, it's, it's incredible how strong they were to hold on to that. I mean, and that's our time to hold on to that moral center. Yeah, it's really inspiring. I think that's why so many people still like reading uh, books about World War II and learning more about it because it's inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I mean, the bravery just really, I know I keep saying that word, um, but it really is just first and foremost in my mind when I think about World War II and why do I like to read about, why do I like to read, you know, because as a reader too, like I, that's my favorite genre to read about as well. Um, and it's such an honor to be able to write in this genre. And I really do feel like um, it just is the bravery that people exhibited. So it sounds like you're researching uh, Poland. So what is next for you? Is it another historical fiction this time in uh, 
Poland for yeah. World War II? <laughs> yep, actually, that's correct. Uh, I actually just got back from Poland a few weeks ago. I was in Warsaw for two weeks doing research. And this one is called The Keeper of Hidden Books. It is. It takes place in Warsaw with two best friends, one who is Jewish and is forced into the um, Warsaw ghetto and the other one who is on the Polish side. And it's really sort of their lives before, during, and after the war. Yeah, it's been it's been really incredible writing this one. I'm like about a third of the way, um, it's about a third of the way done right now. And it's not for pre-order or anything, but it is on Goodreads, so there's my shameless promo. It doesn't have a cover and it doesn't have a blurb, but I am keeping track, like little notes on the review portion of it mm -hmm. um, to just kind of let people know what's going on with it if anybody's interested in following that one as well. What was the title again? The Keeper of Hidden Books. Oh, I think so. I've heard stories of in the in the ghetto, they would hide books or because I, I have done research and read things before. And I I thought I, I heard about the in the ghettos, they'd have like elaborate systems of hiding books and things because right. um, stories were important to them and they Absolutely. needed, you know, 100 you know, percent. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think I'd read the Nazis were also burning books too. So. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They were, they were completely destroying books. Um, I can't go into too much because I'm still like researching a lot of that uh, mm -hmm. and, and figuring out exactly how I'm putting it into my books. I'm afraid I'm going to say something and then it's going to be like, <laughs> oh, yeah. she didn't part, you know, <laughs> so I always, whenever I'm writing a book, I'm always careful about what I say because I've pigeonholed myself before into certain things. And I'm like, oh no, I didn't mention that. And I have to. So yeah. <laughs> The Indiana Jones movie, like the, one of the scenes is they're burning, the Nazis are burning the books or whatever. Does anybody remember that from Indiana Jones? And I remember like seeing it as a kid and being so angry. So I guess that showed that I was going to be a librarian one day. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really were... something, there really is something so offensive about the destruction of books. Um, yeah. I know I have like, we have, I don't know if anybody is part of this, but they have like a buy nothing kind of thing in our community here where you can give away things. So somebody was giving away some books and I had mentioned that I wanted a couple of them. And she said, oh, well, um, do you want the other ones? If not, my husband will just burn them in the bonfire when we have a fire later on tonight. And I was like, oh my God, I'll take them all. Yes. <laughs> I was, so I have these books. I, I don't even, you know, I actually already have duplicates of them here. So I don't even need to have these books, but I couldn't let them be sacrificed into the flames of somebody's bonfire to like make marshmallows over. I was really truly offended. Yeah. And so I, I took all of the books. I, it was like a massive bag of books I don't need, but I have them. <laughs> they are safe the now. <laughs> I was Yay. really appalled. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I would have been too. I would have been like, you're going to do what? <laughs> yes, I yeah. I'm like, and you know, these are people that you'll see like at the at the you know Publix and, and the grocery store and everything. So I don't want to I don't want to start any kind of like fights or anything like that. I was I was really just very appalled uh when she said that I was like, oh my gosh, I'll take every single one of them, please. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what is your writing process like? Just because right now in the background, I can see your board with the different color post-its <laughs> on it. So I'm very curious. <laughs> yeah. So I always joke that, um, so I'm very type A and I joke that it's 12 point times new Roman font because it's so type A. Um, but yeah, my board in the background is actually, those are sort of my quarterly goals to keep track of everything. So I have the top row is what I want to do. The middle row is what's in the middle of being done. And the ending, the last row is what's completed. 
So um, the, the bottom row is never nearly as full as I should like it to be, <laughs> but um, such is life. But yeah, so my process really is to do a lot of research up front. I do um, probably about nine months worth of research. And then I like to go to the place that I've been researching because I feel like it really does sort of flesh everything out together in my head. It's almost kind of like my research is the black and white drawing and going there in person is sort of the color that really mm -hmm. brings everything to life for me. Um, which I know I'm incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity to do that. And so um, once I'm done with that, then I put together my characters and I have a layout of what happens in history because really I try to keep everything as true to history as absolutely possible. And so um, my characters reacting to what happens in history really is where the plot comes from. Mm -hmm. And um, and then I write it. <laughs> which sounds like so easy. Oh, and then I write it, but it's not. Um, <laughs> That's the hard part. No. It's, definitely, it's not as hard as the edits, but it is definitely the hard part. <laughs> yeah. So will you be going to Poland for this next book? Yes, so I actually did. I went a few weeks oh. ago. I was there for two weeks and um, and it really was just incredible. Warsaw is such a beautiful city. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's really interesting because about 90% of it was completely destroyed after the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. And so they rebuilt as much of it as they could by taking large chunks of rubble that were left. So you'll find buildings all over Warsaw where you'll see like an old, like sort of darker part of the stone and then new stone built around it. And it's because they tried to keep as much of it as possible from the original structures to rebuild as much as they could. That's amazing. Yeah, they, they really did. They put so much care into it. And um, there's even um, the palace that's there. They, if you look at it, the gold is different. Like one little piece of gold of a structure will be different from all the rest of them. And it's because they knew that the war was coming. So they took off pieces of all the gold ornamental pieces um, to keep hidden to make sure that if it ever had to be rebuilt, they could replicate it. So they have those original ones with all the replicated ones. And you can tell because it's a slightly different color. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's really incredible. I mean, it's um, the care and the love that really went into rebuilding the city is just amazing. Yeah, that would be really neat to like walk around and look for those pieces and be like, that's an original piece. And yes. then this is all new around it. So. Yes, it really is. It's so cool. And, you know, I mean, I just, I can't even imagine, like, I have a hard time with a thousand piece puzzle <laughs> and they all fit together. Like, I can't imagine being like, I think that this goes to this building. Let's use this and make a <laughs> window out of it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really amazing to me. <laughs> what do you hope readers take away from The Librarian Spy? Um, something that I really hope that readers take away, and, and this actually we haven't even really touched on, um, but is just the hardships that the refugees really did have to endure um, while they were in Portugal. It seems like they would be the lucky ones to really escape Nazi occupation and the persecution of Jews, but, but really they were in this like holding pattern that really felt like tenuous at best because if you had the Nazis attack, um, if they ended up attacking Portugal, they would be right in the same boat that they were in before. But while they were there, they had all these different visas that they had to obtain because the countries that were accepting um, refugees really didn't want to accept anymore. They really were at capacity. 
Um, and, and there were a lot of other things that came into play. Unfortunately, anti-Semitism falls into that as well. But rather than saying, we don't want any more refugees, they made the red tape so thick that it was almost impossible to get through. So you had to have exit visas, transit visas, all these various different visas um, in order to get any of that with America. I know specifically you had to have like a character witness. You had to have financial um, proof that you could support yourself once you were in America. And I mean, these people, they, they left with their clothes on their back in some cases. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it really was, uh, it was such an interminable wait that they had to endure. And then once they did have all of their visas, they would have to get a boat ticket. And sometimes the boat would be late and then they would have to start the process over again because it all expired. Um, and then you had the Portuguese secret police that was kind of breathing down their neck for, for staying too long. And, um, So that's something that I really want people to come away with after reading this book is just really the true understanding of what a lot of um, people in Portugal really did endure during the war while they were waiting to try to really find a place to go that they could actually be safe. Wow, I had no idea. I mean, I knew about like all the red tape and the visa stuff, but um, that's just crazy that they would have to re go through the process if the boat was late or anything like that and it yeah. would be really stressful oh absolutely yeah and you know the portuguese people were just so welcoming and loving and generous and um you know that that really is something that stood out to me in my research is that anti-semitism really was not a thing in portugal now of course i'm sure there that's unfortunately you know there's there's going to be uh, some people who probably were but the majority of the population really, they were not anti-Semitic. They really were very welcoming. And um, I think that Salazar actually did a good job um, keeping um, the refugees from really taking too many resources from Portugal and that like they weren't allowed to have jobs because there were a lot of aides that were helping them, but they weren't allowed to have jobs. So it didn't take the jobs from the Portuguese, which didn't keep the, which didn't build resentment. So, um, I mean, but just, and when I went to Portugal, I, I, everybody was so warm and welcoming and it was exactly how I read when I was doing my research and it was amazing. That's lovely. So now, now I'm, Got to go on vacation to Portugal someday. I mean, to- you know, I have to say it was beautiful. The food was amazing. Like I could not recommend it more. It was, it was, please go to Portugal. You will love it. <laughs> <laughs> and for our last question, uh, what are you reading right now? Or what would you recommend we read? Um, so I actually just finished reading Sarah Penner's new book. That's not out yet. It's the London Seance Society. Um, that was really, really good. So um, if it's on pre-order, it doesn't have a cover or a blurb, I don't think. Actually, it has a blurb, but no cover yet. Um, but that one is for pre-order and it was such an evocative and wonderful read. I completely recommend it. Um, I also just re- recently finished reading um, The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn. I'm a huge Kate Quinn fan. Like I said, I love to read World War II also. And, um, and it is so, so, so good. So if you haven't read that one, I highly recommend it as well. Jagisha's a huge Kate Quinn fan, if I remember correctly. Yes, yes. I have not read The Diamond Eye, but I did read The Rose Code, which was, I thought, fantastic. So Yes, that one was very good. <laughs> Our guest today is Madeline Martin, and The Librarian Spy is available right here at the Kirkwood Public Library and wherever fascinating books are sold. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great chatting with you, ladies. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Madeline Martin. 
and I am looking forward to finishing up The Librarian's Spy. I hope that you'll come to the library and check it out. I want to leave you with a quote about librarians, of course. A trained librarian is a powerful search engine with a heart. Sarah McIntyre. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next week when we interview mystery author Sarah Pierce about her new book, The Retreat.